Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Mike Murphy, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good, Ax. I'm doing good. I'm uh, I'm a little worried looking at the world situation, complicated politics in the Middle East, just what President Trump was created to handle. And of course, we're we're back to the Supreme Court nomination battle again. Yeah, we're we, in the way back machine. We got here. a lot of stuff to cover because uh, we 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 now have the aftermath of the debate, and we ought to go through it and see what what it all meant. But yeah. Kavanaugh back in the news, and uh, you know new revelations in a book by a couple of New York Times uh, reporters, uh, you know suggesting that evidence, additional evidence, was overlooked by the FBI, maybe by the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, and President Trump uh, energetically leaped into that debate, and uh, as did Mitch McConnell, talk about the far left and uh, besmirching this good man. At least four Democratic uh, presidential candidates, maybe five, immediately called for Kavanaugh's uh, impeachment. What do you think the politics of this is? This is classic base food on the right conservatives. They like Kavanaugh. They think he got a bum rap. They're not sure. I think if they were honest about it, about what happened all those decades ago as a drunken college student, but they think he's led an exemplary life since then, and they're seeing an attempt to bring a can opener to the Supreme Court. You know, on the other hand, the Democratic base sees somebody who lied, is guilty of, you know, sexual assault, and therefore I get why the Democratic candidates are piling on. But in the general election, I don't know. Again, this is yet another thing that Republicans will create a wedge issue out of for being a conservative. He, he's being totally maligned. I, it's messy, and um, it, 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 the incentives are to fight like everything in our politics now. Yeah, I mean, I believe that that whole process was, uh, was, was really suspect uh, and that they didn't thoroughly investigate. But uh, you, you talked to Claire McCaskill and some of the Democrats who lost in uh, 2018, and they would say that they had momentum until the Kavanaugh hearing, and that yeah. really stoked up the Republican uh, base. So um, as a matter of politics, it's you're right, good base politics, and if you're running in a Democratic primary, it's a good place to be to call for impeachment. I look forward to talking with our guest today, Amy Klobuchar, who was on, who's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, played a big role in those Kavanaugh hearings to hear what she has to say about it. You mentioned the, the Middle East. Um, this thing with Iran has really ratcheted up now. The, they, uh, there was an attack on the Saudi oil installation. The Houthi rebels from, uh, from Yemen claim credit for it, but it looked like a pretty sophisticated attack, and the administration immediately blamed Iran and uh, word, uh, let word out that they're considering all options, including military options. Uh, where does this all go? Well, that's a billion-dollar question. This is an interesting one because the Iranians and the Saudis have been having this proxy war for a while, uh, fighting it out in Yemen, although there's some evidence that the missile, which apparently could have been an Iranian copy of a Ukrainian-Russian missile they bought on the black market, a cruise missile, could have come from southern Iraq, from the north. So this thing is escalating, and it could be, uh, I mean, we, we, we could have retaliation by the Saudis who are armed to the teeth, and even there are allies, some American participation. I think President Trump, if you're a cynic, might want to change the subject a little bit. On the other hand, the Iranians are escalating their troublemaking. So if we have an election that's suddenly about foreign policy, that could shuffle the deck. And then... Yeah, I think it's really complicated uh, because Trump is a guy who ran on non-engagement, on withdrawing from... Uh, these foreign uh, battles. Now, maybe people believe that, you know, since it involves oil uh, and gas prices, which are going to go up inevitably, that that will, uh, that he needs to uh, to act. But uh, I think it's a really tough call for him. I, I remember being in the White House, and I remember what the military people said about what, uh, what a war with Iran would really look like. And uh, it is not, this is not Iraq where you just kind of knock out their air. Yep. And it, these are serious, uh, these are serious foes. 
Well, you start with the chain of escalation. You don't know where it stops. That's the problem. Then you've committed American forces to it. I, I don't know. But who, who wins as a candidate? Like Biden, does he say he's captain foreign policy? Mayor Pete, the veteran? I think it could shuffle the deck a little for the deeds. Yeah, well, who knows where we'll be uh, in a year with this. One election that it may affect is the Israeli election. Bibi Netanyahu's yeah. up on Tuesday. His whole, you know, one of his predicates is the threat, the mortal threat that Iran uh, poses to Israel. Donald Trump's very popular there. A little saber rattling in advance of that uh, is not uh, is not a bad thing. I remember once I, uh, uh, Bibi tried to hire me and I was unable to do it, but we had an interesting conversation. And he, his view, which I thought was correct, is that the fulcrum point of Israeli politics is always the topic of the election. If it's domestic stuff, labor, the opposition does well. But if it's security, then right. Likud and Bibi does well. And that it does seem to be playing into his hands. And the polls show Bibi's having a little comeback. Yeah, and just last week, just last week he had a, uh, a presser, uh, you know, disclosing what he said were unknown, here, heretofore unknown Iranian, uh, you know, nuclear facilities. Uh, and uh, so, you know, he's leaning into that. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but we had some contra-attempts of our own of a different kind last week in that Democratic debate. I want to get to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about insurance. <laughs> Well, you know, Axe, it is National Life Insurance Month. I bet you didn't know that. Most people don't. That's why 40% of people don't even think about life insurance and don't have any. And people really should think about it because right now prices are the lowest they've been in 20 years. And I'll tell you something, Policy Genius has made it easier than ever to get covered. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price, as opposed to Policy Moron, where it's only the high prices. Policy <laughs> Genius is a setup that once you apply, their team handles all the paperwork and all the red tape. And Policy Genius just doesn't make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and or disability insurance. If you need life insurance, but you just haven't gotten around to it, come on, man. National Life Insurance Awareness Month is as good a time as any to get started. Go to PolicyGenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius. The easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Well, I think some of those uh, Democrats might have wanted a little debate insurance because in this last debate, the stakes were so high for many of them. They're starting to run out of money. They got to break through. And I think a few of them did pretty well. I call it the night of the understudies because the Bookers, the Klobuchar's, Mayor Pete, even Beto had a bit of a comeback and may not be enough. But I, I thought they did a good job kind of getting into the race for one last charge. One of the interesting things about it was this is the first time that we've actually seen people draw very hard, sort of philosophical, ideological lines. And one of them was around this Medicare for All proposal that Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. has and Elizabeth Warren has endorsed. Uh, and people really uh, picked that apart. Let's listen to Senator Klobuchar, who we're going to hear from later. And while Bernie wrote the bill, I read the bill. And on page eight... On page eight of the bill, it says that we will no longer have private insurance as we know it. And that means that 149 million Americans will no longer be able to have their current insurance. That's in four years. I don't think that's a bold idea. I think it's a bad idea. You know, this became a flare point early in the debate between uh Joe Biden and uh, Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren, who are his two closest competitors. And it was really interesting, the formulation that he chose. I think we should have a debate on health care. I think uh, I know that the senator says she's for Bernie. Well, I'm for Barack. I think the Obamacare worked. What Biden was saying and what appears, uh, you know, from polling suggests is a really strong argument is he was for building out the Affordable Care Act, uh, not for uh, not for Medicare for all, which would end private insurance uh, in four years. It's interesting. No one's really touched those two on this here. Elizabeth Warren did a good job of talking around whether it would require significant new taxes uh, on the middle class, just saying it would reduce expenses uh, 
uh, on the middle class. Uh, I thought she navigated that well. But this is going to continue to be a problem uh, for them, I think, in the uh, in the coming months. Yeah, I thought it was a really telling moment. I, I thought the first hour of the debate was the best Biden we've seen. I thought he did a good job with the how do you pay for it refrain. And for the first time in one of these campaign debates, I saw Elizabeth Warren, adroit as she is, a bit on the defense. Nobody's been able to do that to her yet. And there are even parts of the debate where she kind of disappeared. So I don't think her performance cost her anything, but I don't think it was one of her better nights. And for the first half, I think Biden did well. And it's very clever to make Medicare for all now a referendum on are you for or again Barack Obama and his plan. I mean, that, that really gives the non-Medicare for all people something to work with. So I thought we saw those politics change a little bit, and that could affect Warren's trajectory going forward. By the way, Obama had a very good debate. Uh, for a guy who wasn't yeah. on the stage, everyone was, you know, after a previous debate where there was a lot of sort of inferential criticism of the Obama policies, people were tripping over each other trying to uh, say nice things about him. I kind of disagree with you on Warren. Um, I thought that uh, that that was a tricky pass that she had to navigate on health care. But I thought she had a good debate for one specific reason. You look at Elizabeth Warren's polling numbers, and she's doing very well with upper income, uh, uh, highly educated people with very liberal voters and with young people. She's not broken through uh, particularly with uh, white working class voters, African-American voters. She trails Biden uh, by double digits, uh, in, in the case of African-Americans, by a massive number. Uh, and so she took this opportunity to burnish uh, her biography, which I think is her whole card here in terms of trying to break through with these other voters. You've said before she has to be less the professor uh, from mm -hmm. Harvard and more, uh, you know, and fighting grandma from Oklahoma. And you're right. She started to play the biomotive card. Lou. Let's listen to it. Let's listen to some of that. So I was born and raised in Oklahoma, but I'm sure glad to be in Texas tonight. All three of my brothers served in military bases here in Texas. That was their ticket to the middle class. Me, I got my big opportunity about a half mile down the road from here at the University of Houston back when it cost $50 a semester for a price that I could pay for on a part-time waitressing job. I got to finish my four-year degree and I became a special needs teacher. I still remember that first year as a special needs teacher. I could tell you what those babies looked like. I had four to uh, four to six-year-olds. But at the end of that first year, I was visibly pregnant. And back in the day, that meant that the principal said to me, um, wish me luck and hired someone else for the job. And the reason I'm standing here today is because I got back up, I fought back, I know what's broken, I want to be in the fight to fix it in America. Thank that's you, why Senator. I'm here. Yeah, that's exactly what she needs to be doing a lot more of if she's going to pull off the pivot from the Harvard faculty lounge. And I thought she was adroit at it. I just never heard her on the defensive a little bit on Medicare for all before. And she's going to have to fix that. Listen, I what I find really interesting is Elizabeth Warren, who has a plan for everything, has not offered her own plan on on health care yet. Yeah. And I think yeah. that there's going to come a time in this campaign when she is going to present a much more nuanced uh, uh, plan on health care that helps her escape some of the down downsides of the Sanders thing. We should note that Bernie Sanders uh, was Bernie Sanders and that he <laughs> had, you know, he, I always say Bernie Sanders is the Billy Joel of, uh, of this race. He, he, um, he, people come to see him to hear the greatest hits of the seventies, eighties, nineties, and and he is very consistent uh, in delivering on that, and uh, there is an authenticity to it. Uh, so he was raspy voiced that hindered him in the debate. But my guess is that to the fifteen percent or eighteen percent of people who say they're for Bernie, he did just fine. 
Yeah, no, you're right about that. Bernie's Bernie. He's got his chunk, and they're going to like to hear the hits. The other thing Bernie gets a little credit for is, you know, one of the things that's off-putting to me about Warren is she has a little bit of a Trumpian-style demagogic thing where every problem goes back to taxing some rich people. When it got to paying for all the free college, tax rich people. When it got to paying for the new health care plan where everything's going to be really inexpensive and wonderful, tax to rich people. Bernie will go out there and tell you, yeah, I'm going to soak the hell out of these people and pay for it, and we're going to do it. You know, he paints in vivid colors. Well, and he acknowledges that there's there's middle class taxes uh, involved. I think uh, that, you know, I've spoken to a few of your uh, Republican uh, buddies in the last week, and there is a sense that, um, you know, well, everybody says Warren's populism will limit her ability to win. They're concerned about her cutting in ultimately on some of Trump's base just because there is a common theme of the system being rigged against the middle class. I don't know if it will work out that way, but this is, it's, 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 we, and we don't know if she's going to be the nominee. It's, um, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I subscribe to that theory because I think she is a very risky nominee for the Democrats in a year where why would you want risk? Because she gives Trump something to work with. But And she's pugilistic at a time when people don't necessarily want more pugilism. But. Exactly. Fighter, fighter, fighter. Her, her answer always has that word 20 times. But that said, if she can pivot to the fighting grandma and get that big as bad populism, which is a third cousin of Trump's, she could win a general election. I don't think, like a lot of Republicans, it's impossible. I think, I guess, the other big thing of the debate uh, is Biden, old way down at the end of the stage, old Castro uh, decided to help the RNC out again, like he did in the first debate, by making everybody raise their hands on decriminalizing borders by essentially calling the vice president of the United States uh, senile. What's, what's your take on the, the Castro attack? Well, let's listen to let's listen to that exchange. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. in. Are you you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? And he he repeated that a couple of times for emphasis. So it wasn't as if it wasn't sort of intentional. Um, And it was it's clearly calling uh, Biden out as uh, as sort of addled and uh, as addled and old. Uh, You know, the thing about it was, um, first of all, Biden had a colorable argument that he was right and Castro was wrong about what mm-hmm. he said. So rude and wrong, are a, <laughs> that's a very bad combo. You know, Castro's sitting down there at 1%, and he was throwing long, uh, trying to get into the mix. Uh, but I think he, he hurt himself there. Yeah, it's the first time in a long career in this racket that I've seen somebody not only blow up their dormant and probably hopeless presidential campaign, but also blow up their more promising vice presidential campaign in the same 20 seconds. You know, they may give Joe the nomination or they may give him a gold watch at the end of this. But either way, he is a popular, beloved guy in the Democratic Party. And it was a cheap shot. Yeah, it was a cheap shot. The uh, and I and you know we've had Julian Castro on the show. I like him very much. I think that was uh, that was ill advised. It did raise a question though, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, the subtext of it was bad for Biden. I think because everybody's talking about it now. And and the fact is, this was a very long debate. I think it went on for fifteen hours or maybe three hours. <laughs> and um, and by you know, as you say, he was very energetic in, in hour one. By the end, he yeah. seemed uh, exhausted. And um, he uh, uh, there was a, there was a question about race at the end of the debate. And it's always been sort of touchy. Um, somehow he's very reactive to those questions, understands that his base is very much in the African-American community. But he gave a meandering answer, and this is a piece of what he said. let's listen. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. 
Yeah, so this was part of the hail of words that didn't necessarily make a lot of sense in the context uh, of the question. Now, I know you're a vinyl guy, so you probably have a record player, but you know, a lot of people don't have record players anymore. And it really felt like, just to make a record player reference, that by the end of the night, he was moving at 16 RPMs and everybody else was at 45. I think he's going to only campaign in Brooklyn vinyl shops now to connect himself. <laughs> Look, I, I thought he was going to finish with and get the grandkids and watch a talkie together. You know, it was was one click away from the President Reagan's famous meandering discussion of the Pacific Coast Highway, but Reagan won. So yeah. some of that is built into Joe, but these things build up and the new expectations form is crispness going forward because while Castro blew himself up, the issue he raised is now here. It's been lurking in the background for a while and it's down to Biden to knock it down. Yeah. Yeah. So another interesting uh, development in that debate, or you know, was the reemergence of Beto O'Rourke after this tragic uh, uh, massacre in in his hometown of El Paso. He seems to have found his voice. It may not be a voice that leads him uh, to the nomination, but on one particular question, uh, he was very passionate and got a lot of note. Let's uh, listen to that. Are you proposing taking away their guns, and how would this work? I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield. And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15. And that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. So that was a big moment, and it resonated with a lot of Democrats and a lot of people who are concerned about why these weapons of war are, uh, are on our streets. That said, there were also a lot of exultant Republicans who, uh, who clipped that and are using it to motivate uh, their own base. And um, first of all, what do you make of Beto's resurgence? And secondly, as a, as a fallen R... What do you uh, what do you make of uh, of of this issue? And you put it together with Medicare for all, the yeah. uh, the border um, stuff. You know, Beto, I I believe he believes it, and the passion and authenticity has given him a jump start in the Democratic primaries, and he'll probably turn it into a little bit of go now. The problem is, these debates have been a factory for potential Republican wedge issues. We had the decriminalized border, slave reparations, confiscating private insurance, which is how the Republicans will frame Medicare for all. And now an issue that Democratic strategists, at least in the past, maybe gun politics have totally changed. I, I, my guess is they haven't. Uh, the idea of, of um, uh, mandatory you know, seizure of, of, of guns, you don't want to go into a Midwestern swing state with that message. So this thing has been a gift factory for the Republican uh, operatives. And I can tell you they're high-fiving each other because they know the country wants to fire Trump and they're looking for a path to make the election something else. Uh, and so Beto, you know, he's... It's short term, I get it. I think it's legitimate. It's what he believes. But long term, whoa, uh, yeah. it's risky nitroglycerin they're playing with. Yeah. I do think gun politics have changed, but maybe not to that That much. Yeah. We know that. We know that there's, you know, huge uh, support for universal background checks and some other steps, maybe limiting ammunition for some of right. these. But uh, but the the, conf- the confiscation uh, of guns is a... Uh, is a uh, uh, you know is a problem. I will say this: Beto looked lost in this presidential race uh, for months, and he seems to have found his role here as a, a passionate, you know, uh, what he would say, truth teller. He believes what he's saying. I saw him on uh, Meet the Press yesterday, and they asked him about Biden's age, and he gave a really passionate answer about all the things that. Uh, that are going on right now that we should be addressing. And, uh, you know, it was very, um, you know, beyond that or just, you know, not that. And, you know, it was really, really strong. My guess is he gets a little bump here 
that he oh, raises yeah. I, some money. I think money. he's going to sell some tickets. And you can feel the nervousness among the other Democratic understudy level candidates who were cagey and have an eye on the general election. Mayor Pete distancing himself from this. Amy Klobuchar, who I thought had a pretty good night going on the offense from the center for the first time, distancing herself on a mandatory take back. So this is going to be a head versus heart thing. And there are going to be plenty of Democratic primary voters who are going to go with heart. But if beating Trump is the big mission, that, that can be an expensive hobby. Uh, and speaking of heart, uh, one of the really moving closing statements in Houston came from uh, Amy Klobuchar, who talked about her biography and some of the struggles that she's overcome in life and the lessons that she learned from them. Let's take a listen to that. My challenges and resilience have brought me up here. I grew up with a dad who struggled with alcoholism his whole life. And after his third DWI, he had a choice between jail and treatment. He chose treatment with his faith, with his friends, with our family. And in his words, he was pursued by grace. And that made me interested in public service because I feel like everyone should have that same right to be pursued by grace. I then got married, my husband's out there somewhere, hopefully smiling, um, and our daughter. And our daughter was born, I had this expectation, we we're gonna have this perfect, perfect birth, and she was really sick, and she couldn't swallow, and she was in and out of hospitals for a year and a half. But when she was born, they had a rule in place that you got kicked out of the hospital in 24 hours. She was in intensive care, and I was kicked out. And I thought, this could never happen to any other mom again. So I went to the legislature, our state legislator, not an elected official, a mom, and I advocated for one of the first laws in the country guaranteeing new moms and their babies a 48-hour hospital stay. And when they tried to delay the implementation of that law, I brought six pregnant friends to the conference committee, so they outnumbered the lobbyists two to one. And when they said, when should it take place, they all raised their hand and said, now. That is what motivated me to go into public service. And now with us from South Carolina is Senator Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, great to have you here. You're coming to us from South Carolina on your uh, dizzying tour of, of states, and we appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be on. So before we get into uh, the race itself, there is... The story kicking around this morning about Justice Kavanaugh and uh, some unreported and apparently unreviewed uh, evidence that your committee uh, did not get a chance to consider. Uh, and some of your colleagues have already called for impeachment uh, proceedings. And I'm wondering uh, what your view is, having actually been part of that proceeding. No one uh, was better known for having to deal with this hearing than me, and no one got hit and to the point where the nominee had to apologize to me uh, than I did when I was simply trying to ask him some questions about uh, whether he may have blacked out and that's why he couldn't remember what happened. And he then hit back at me and said, well, you blacked out. He later apologized, um, and uh, since that time I have taken a very strong position that this hearing and how this whole thing went down uh, was a sham. There was not proper vetting. We weren't able to see all the documents. And then when we had that second opportunity to look at documents, it was in a basement room and we could only look at it for an hour and then the other party came in for an hour and then we could go back for an hour. You couldn't even write down notes that you could take out with you. Um, and it really was an unbelievable thing. It was all the FBI tips. Uh, so there'd be 10 nutty tips and then there'd be one real document of someone that had called in and you had no idea what had been investigated and what didn't. And so I've always taken the position that those documents should be have been forwarded to the committee like a normal background check, uh, and they weren't. And that's what I think needs to happen here. Uh, if you really want to look into these allegations, they're the same. Um, it was a case that, of course, had come out at that time, but the New York Times seems to have unearthed some new information. Mm -hmm. We should get those documents. And once you are able to look at all of this and have an appropriate investigation, then a decision could be made by the House of Representatives about what they want to do with it. And I just think that is the proper way to do this. Um, and 
um, so I premature never to, wanted Justice premature to, to call be on the court to begin with. Premature to call for impeachment. Well, I think, again, you can't do the impeachment, even if you want to, unless you have the underlying information mm-hmm. and you're able to look at it. Again, I, I love the people that are saying, well, he should be, he should step down. Well, I'd like a lot of these people to step down. I'd like President Trump to step down, right? Uh, but a lot of this is making sure, if you're going to go forward with that, that you actually have the information to do it. And that decision would rest with the House. But it's good politics, right? I mean, doesn't it, uh, doesn't it resonate with... Uh some of the base of the Democratic Party to call for well, impeachment right now? Well, people will make that their own decisions. How I am running my campaign, and you know this, is mm-hmm. I'm running my campaign based on what I think we need to do as a country. And the only way any of this changes, that we get justices that respect the law in place, uh, that we get something done on climate change and gun safety and doing something about pharmaceutical prices, is if we have a president uh, that's going to wake up every day thinking about what's best for the American people mm-hmm. instead of what's best for themselves. And the only way we really get this stuff done is if we also make sure we have the House and that Mitch McConnell is not the majority leader. And the only way you do that is by focusing on bread and butter issues, because these are rural states. These are states that we're going to have to take back from Republicans in Arizona and Colorado, states we need to keep like Alabama. So we don't just need to win. We need to win. Senator, hi, Mike Murphy here. Uh, Let me ask you a question about all that, because I've watched your campaign with interest. I'm in this bizarre world of being a rabidly anti-Trump Republican, so it's not, you know, I'm not normally semi-rooting for a Democrat. And I've said since the beginning, I think you're one of the strongest general election candidates the party could nominate. You said that behind your back, too, by the way. <laughs> in, in the first, you know, half of the primary here, you've struggled a bit. You've got other candidates who are more famous, better funded. I did see you step it up in the debate a little more about drawing distinctions. You didn't go there with Beto on the idea of mandatory buybacks. I, I can tell on this impeachment thing, you're moving a little slower uh, than some of your more excited uh, uh, competitors. Are you ramping it up now to draw more ideological differences? What's your strategy to get to that top three in Iowa uh, between now and then to try to break through? Is it more ideological? Well, if I told you my whole strategy, I might not get there. But I will say this. <laughs> well, give us I'm 80%. I'm the same person than when I announced in the yeah, yeah, we're, we're just taking a huge hand. But for me, it's been a better opportunity with just 10 people up there on the debate stage to make my case. And I've been clear about this. You know, if you are someone that wants to kick 149 million people off their insurance in four years or current insurance, then I'm not your candidate. Or if you think wealthy kids should get free college, then I'm not your candidate. If you want a $16 trillion package um, on some of our very important issues on climate change, where I think I have a, a much better plan, when we only have a $20 trillion economy, then I'm not your candidate. And so I think it's really important that you have someone that is running for the people who are tired of the extremes in our politics, Uh, people who feel stuck in the middle of this. And that's the case I'm going to make. And it is a somewhat unique case on that stage. And I'm going to keep doing it because that is where the vast majority of people are. That's how we won the governor's race in Kansas. Uh, That candidate, Laura Kelly, who is now the governor who beat Chris Kobach, she wasn't famous. She wasn't a celebrity candidate. She just understood that state and was able to win. The same thing in how we beat Scott Walker in Wisconsin, uh, a key state in the general election. Um, So that is the case that I'm going to make, is that I don't want to be president for half of America. I want to be president for all of America. So let me ask you a crass political question. Uh, Can... Can Democrats? I can't believe you would do that. I know it's just Shock. it's a, It must be a Monday morning thing. I don't know. But yeah. um, the uh, can Democrats win? I mean, are you are you concerned about the positions that you heard on the stage? Given what you just said, can Democrats uh, win uh, by uh, advocating a Mer- Medicare for all plan of the sort that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have ad- advocated? Can they win? Uh, on the platform of decriminalizing uh, border crossings. Uh, You heard Beto's uh, call, uh, and I think it resonated with a lot of people because people are so horrified about what uh, we've seen. But in the end of the day, uh, and Murphy would know better than I, these seem like things that Republicans could have a heyday with. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to be the pundit here. You guys are better at that than me. Uh, but I just look at it policy-wise, and I think a lot of these things aren't bold ideas. I think they're bad ideas, and I have ideas that are truly bold. Let's look at guns. Getting the universal background check in place that we've been trying to do for decades, that would be a bold, big idea. Getting forward, now these things I think we could do now, right? Allowing police officers to properly vet people when they apply for permits, uh, making sure that uh, domestic abusers aren't able to go out and get an AK-47 if they've been convicted. Those are things we could do right now. But I think an assault weapon ban and doing something about magazine limits, uh, those are bold ideas. And so that's where I would go with this. Um, and Let me, um, other uh, people are going to have different ideas. But I think these ideas are strongly supported now, um, especially the universal background check by the majority of voters mm-hmm. in this country. So why don't we get those things when done? You around, when, you, when, you, when you go around, when you when you travel around. this way we bring along independents and moderate Republicans with us. Yeah, when you travel around, what, what kind of reaction do you get to the, these ideas and your critique of some of the ideas that you've rejected? Um, people actually are, uh, they want to win, right? So they are willing to listen to other ideas. I think one of the problems with the debates until this one um, is that it's been about what are Bernie and Elizabeth's ideas and how does everyone else respond? I think in this debate, you are starting to hear some of the other candidates put forward their own ideas and have some back and forth on it. Uh, because otherwise it just becomes one set of uh, a universal view, and then everyone else just either is like on the sidelines throwing darts at it. I don't think that's well, what a debate is. I think a debate should be which idea is better. Um, and that's Senator, what we're starting to, to, to hear. And I think once they do that, that's where I'm betting on me. Once they do that, uh, plus the fact that I can win in those Midwestern states, and I'm from the Midwest and one of mm-hmm. only two candidates up on the stage from the Midwest, um, that they're going to listen because the one thing that uh-huh. unites our party and brings in the those Senator. independents and moderate Republicans that most other candidates aren't talking about that we need to win. Um, one thing <laughs> that right, brings Senator, them I gotta, in I gotta... is this idea of beating Donald Trump. And they just want to make sure there's an alternative, that there's a vision, um, that there's some ideas that are going to solve some of these problems that we're not dealing with. Our allies so, uh, dealing with the rest of the world. One more making it safer, question, doing something that's... about gun safety and climate change. All these things that this president has balked at and has set us backward, especially when it comes to our position in the world economically and how he's dealing with China and the trade war and the effect yeah. it's having on our workers, where he's now built up an $891 billion <clears throat> trade deficit, biggest one in history, um, as well as a humongous debt that's forecast. Get this, in 10 years, that debt is going to be, our country's debt is going to be worse than it has been at any point than right after World War II, where yeah. we had fought a major war. H- hang on, Senator, because I know you have a limited time, and we put in a quarter and got 10 plays there. So I know Mike has a question for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to get, it's a good stump, but I, we, I got to get back to the political question here. Uh, I think you've got a little, little heat off the debate now. Looking at the Iowa caucus, clearly Vice President Biden and Elizabeth Warren are kind of sitting atop it. When you're out there campaigning, who do you feel like the competition is where you can draw the best contrast. Is it you and Mayor Pete, you and uh, Senator Harris, Senator Booker? Because there, you know, there are well, other senators, there, there are other Midwesterners there. What's your edge to make that top third? They're just evaluating the candidates who they think can win. I was just in Council Bluffs. We had an office opening there um, with a lot of people there, and we did another one in Des Moines. I spoke at one of the African-American churches, Union Baptist in Des Moines, and there are so many people, and it shows them the polls if you really push them, uh, who have not yet decided or choosing between a few candidates. So I think this has just begun, and I think that's what you're certainly seeing in New Hampshire. And you know this, David, from your work with President Obama, uh, where they really don't always make decisions till the end. Yeah, I know. That's a painful memory for me, actually. <laughs> but uh, you... uh I'd bring it up. <laughs> thank you. You... Uh, uh, one of the obstacles you have, it seems to me, is that the uh, moderate voters, if you look at polling, moderate and conservative voters uh, uh, are f- sort of flocking to Vice President Biden. He's got a commanding uh, lead among those voters. Uh, isn't there, isn't 
one of the predicates of your candidacy that if if he should in some way stumble or people turn away from him, then that lane opens up. Seems pretty tough for you to to move move up in a big way there if he's soaking up a lot of that vote. Well, I'm just running my own campaign and making the case that I'm the strongest one. And I do this based on a few factors. As I already mentioned, I'm one of only two candidates from the Midwest with a history of never losing red congressional districts. Never. Even Michelle Bachman's. I've always won them, and I've won them big. The second thing is that I'm one of only three women on the stage. That makes me different. And the third thing, which I think is more subtle but important, is I am a next generation of politicians. I'm someone that has actually lived through this Trump era and get it. I've been able to win in the Trump era, and I've also been able to navigate Republicans during that time and pass over 30 bills where I'm the lead Democrat since President Trump has been in. Um, and I think that's an important case to make to the people of this country, uh, that you're able to stand your ground but also find common ground. And even some Democrats care about that, and that's what I'm banking on. You're in, uh, you're in South Carolina this morning, um, and that obviously is an important state, fourth in the uh, primary calendar. And the first where African Americans really are a, a dominant constituency um, Vice President's getting half that vote right now. You're kind of an asterisk there. It would be a high-class problem for you to have to worry about that because it would mean that you did very well in Iowa uh, and New Hampshire. But you got some hostile questions in that debate about being a prosecutor in a time when people are very sensitive to this notion of, uh, of mass incarceration and the sort of injustice of the justice system. How do you get enough black votes uh, to compete? I have an economic agenda here, David, that I think is a winner uh, for an African-American community because I come from not a rich background. I'm someone that had to fight for everything to get to where I was. And um, my grandpa was an iron ore miner, and we wouldn't be where we are today except for education. Same with my husband. He grew up in a trailer home with five brothers. Um, and so the case that I make is that right now Donald Trump, with his tax cuts for the wealthy and everything else, uh, isn't helping lift people up and isn't giving them the kind of opportunity they should have. And certainly his rhetoric doesn't do that. All that would change when I'm president. I, I got uh, Secondly, yeah, go ahead. I'm um, sorry. Uh, the, his approach... Uh, when it comes to voting, um, African Americans are never going to have a seat at the table if they can't vote. Um, and the way he has supported governors that support gerrymandering and has been opposed to reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act, all of that's important. And as for my background with criminal justice, I think you saw me strongly I did, yes, respond I did. to that. I did. Um, I'm actually someone that. Um, when I was in those eight years, we reduced uh, the incarceration of African-Americans' prisons, prison sentences by 12 percent um, because I focused on white-collar crime, uh, because I use drug court a lot, mm -hmm. um, which is, to me, a big solution yes. for a lot of people that have issues in the criminal justice system. Um, and I've been a strong advocate for reducing criminal sentences and allowing people to vote when they get out. So, um, and then the final thing I pointed out was the African-American community came to me when I first got in and said, our kids have been killed um, on street porches. They've been killed in their houses. And we want someone that's going to seek justice and not just ignore our communities. And that's I, not I, what I did. I, I helped I, them and we uh, put a lot of bad people behind bars. I made a no solemn pledge about it. made a solemn pledge to your staff to let you go. I just want to finish on this. You, you, I saw you on... CNN after uh, the debate, and you said that the uh, Julian Castro attack on Biden was not cool, which I very much agree with. But is is Biden's sort of stamina and acuity and age, uh, do, do those things matter? Uh, I mean, he did get a little lost at the end there on his answer on race. And uh, you may, I mean, vinyl is back, so you may have record players, but most people most people don't. Um, I mean, is that a concern? Because you're choosing the candidate, as you point out, that's going to have to go up against Donald Trump, and that's uh, no, no easy task. I think it's something that the voters are going to evaluate. They are going to have plenty of more debates, and they're going to be able to make a decision about that. I am running my own campaign, and I've pointed out my differences in terms of my background with the vice president, where I live, where I come from, the uh, fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I 
uh, am someone that has been able to um, mount up victories and bring people with me, including independents and moderate Republicans, through the Trump era, not just before it, through it, um, and have been able to give voice to the concerns of people, whatever party they're in, that have been hit by this guy in the White House. And that includes soybean farmers who've got um, soybeans mounting up in bins all over the middle of the country to immigrant workers in our hospitals who, you know, go to bed crying because of something the president of the United States said about them or said about people that look like them or, you know, the seniors who are keeping their insulin drops in their injectors because they can't afford it. Did you slip in a new generation reference in earlier, but I will, uh, I will let that, uh, I will let that go. And I will let you go because I know you have another one of these very, very long days of campaigning ahead of you. Yes, so this, we're going to chart, we're doing, um, uh, College of Charleston, which will be fun. They have a kind of Q&A with students, so I'm looking forward to that. I'll be making the case that you and I just talked about, about the importance and uh, just heading all over the state. So it should good, be good. Good. Have a great Thank day. You, Best of luck. You look forward to okay. seeing you down the line. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dave. Well, David, you are going to get the Amy Klobuchar stump one way or another. That was interesting. She's such a tough potential candidate in the general, but there's this authenticity thing. And when you do the wind up and beat them down with the routine, it undercuts that. It, uh, uh, it's not in the modern era, I think, how you move the needle. As yeah, a no, I, I like Amy a lot, but she tends to talk in, you know, she doesn't depart from her talking points. Some of her talking points are pretty compelling, Uh you know, I, I think she makes a pretty good argument for what a, a strong general election candidate uh, would look like. But but when you ask her to kind of make make the point more finely, and she, you know, she's uh-huh. reluctant to do it. I find her to be um, somewhat conflict averse, and that's yeah, tough a in a situation like Senate. this. You know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. She just won't get off the script. And, you know, you understand why there's risk in that. But it you get into the robotic talking points. I agree they're pretty good talking points, but a lot of them are the old argument of I'm electable because I've done this, that. It, it's not a way to get an emotional connection with voters. And it's, you know, there's a reason that she hasn't caught on so far. She has an opportunity to do it, but uh, she seems more at home in the Senate speechifying mode to me. Yeah, and, and as, to we, as we said uh, before she came on, she had a powerful close uh, in the debate, yeah. and it was very much uh, revealing about her as a person. She's got to do more of that, and she's got to be willing to draw more of a contrast. But she was good to come on uh, with us, uh, and uh, perhaps we'll hear from her again down the line, and she'll have uh, refined that pitch because she undoubtedly will listen to your very wise comments. (laughs) I just hope her staff didn't tell her we pay by the word. They're going to be disappointed. But I've said from the beginning in a general election she'd be so tough. So we'll see. She's got her shot coming right now. And I'll tell you one thing. If Amy wanted to mail a transcript of that stump to somebody, I I think it might persuade them. So she ought to think about, wait for it, stamps.com, David, as you know, one of our great advertisers here. Because who has time to go to the post office? You're running around on the presidential campaign. You're answering interview questions. You're you're on message. You don't want to wait around the post office as nice of a place as it is. That's why you need stamps.com, the most popular time saver for small business people, anybody. Stamps.com, a Eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. She's going to mail some of those answers, brother. She better get some extra stamps is all I can say. (laughs) Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox, and that's it. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Normally, you got to be Postmaster General to have a connection like that. Um, (laughs) It's a no-brainer. It saves you time and money, two important things. That's why over 700,000, bigger than a congressional district, 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. 
And get this, Murphy, right now our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in those magic words that can change your life. Hacks on tap. What are those magic words, David? That's Stamps.com, and enter Hacks on tap. Now, on our favorite topic of mail, we did not do a mailbag last time, so we're going to try our new speed mailbag, get through a couple of them, and I'll start with Denise, who has a question. I'm a Republican. Thank you, Denise. Not a never-Trumper, but could see myself voting for a Dem, provided it was not one of the, quote, free stuff for all candidates like Senators Warren or Sanders. However, I believe a Republican Senate majority would be an important counterweight to a Democratic presidency. So can you spend some time talking about how the Senate is looking? for 2020. What do you think, Axe? I think, Denise, that uh, the odds are probably slightly on your side to retain the Senate, and a lot's going to depend on what happens at the top of the ticket. But Republicans don't have uh, a great setup this year. 23 incumbent Republican seats up, only 12 Democrat seats. Democrats are uh, excited about the prospects in Colorado, where John Hickenlooper just uh, dropped back in to the Senate race in Arizona, where uh, Mark Kelly is running against an incumbent who was appointed, Martha McSally. Both states uh, seem promising for Democrats. Susan Collins, a big veteran of the Senate, uh, now has some problems in Maine, a lot of it related to her vote for Justice Kavanaugh. The Speaker of the House there is challenging her. Democrats uh, are upbeat about that race. And then there are uh, some races in the South that people are going to be looking at. North Carolina, uh, Senator Tillis is up there. Democrats have a, a, a military veteran uh, running against him. They feel very good about that. And two seats up in Georgia, uh, uh, Senator Perdue running for re-election, Senator Isaacson retired. And uh, I think Democrats would feel better about those races if Stacey Abrams uh, who lost narrowly for governor would run. She says she won't. Uh, so a lot will depend on the candidates who emerge there. But Democrats will need, I think, four seats. Doug Jones, fine guy, senator from Alabama, won on kind of a fluke. It's going to be tough to retain that seat. And so for Democrats to take control, uh, they're probably going to need uh, four seats. Well, it's three or four, depending on who wins the presidency for the Senate tie. But if you lose Alabama... Right. That's the problem to me. You can see them getting to three and then Alabama. Then mm -hmm. they're back to two. So the odds are that uh, Republicans will narrowly con uh, control the Senate. But if there's a big Democratic year, um, they could lose it. All top of the ticket. I totally agree. So Mike Dion writes, as a libertarian who regularly split his ticket since 1990, Where's the discussion of Bill Well, Joe Walsh, and Mark Sanford? None of them can win the primary, but together they can wound Trump just enough to give Dems an added two to three point advantage next year. Can they? Well, maybe. And first of all, as a libertarian, what the hell are you doing splitting your ticket? You're supposed to vote the good old tan Stoffel libertarian line. Um, but it's a good question. Look, I'm for Stanford because I think he can run on Trump's fiscal irresponsibility, a core Republican issue, and he's a pal of mine. Anyway, we're in a winner-take-all world in the Republican primary, so highly, highly, highly unlikely they win. But most presidents who have real primary trouble go on to lose because it's a symptom, maybe even more than a cause, of trouble they have with the electorate that you know pops up in the general election. So I'm for the more the merrier. Run, run, run. Trump's unfit, shouldn't serve, and good luck, Mark Sanford. He has a good website. I'll put in a little plug for him. So, X, Chris writes, my question has to do with how we are talking about the black vote. It is continuously repeated that Biden has a huge percentage of the black vote, but most polls also say that what black voters care about most is someone who can win. If someone other than Biden wins Iowa and New Hampshire, not unlikely, his national poll average does not exist in the same way as those state polls, and all of a sudden the national frontrunner has lost the first two primaries, that being Biden, doesn't his vote share with black voters diminish? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think if you look at the national polling, one of the things that makes Biden the front runner is that he's getting nearly half the African-American vote. And I don't think it's just because those voters think he's the guy who can win. I think it's because of his relationship with Barack Obama. As we mentioned earlier, that's why he 
so uh, faithfully clings to the Obama legacy, it is more than just a casual commitment, especially among older African-American voters. But I agree, if the if he loses the first two races, that, that uh, sense that he is the, the most likely and the least risky choice uh, could diminish. And uh, so, you know, they ought to be working very hard to uh, win Iowa. New Hampshire is going to be tough. Uh, or, you know, this thing could unravel on him. Yeah, the day Superman can't fly, he ain't Superman no more. For all that affection in the community, if he starts losing, I think he's toast. All right, man, you just, you've run afoul of a correspondent named Sandy who said, I just heard Murphy say on Hatch Prattle in a primary battle with Mark McKinnon, the truth is if the Dems were better at getting grumpy old white guys, they'd beat Trump. I think this diversity thing is a rabbit hole for them. She writes that Rachel Bitkofer says the opposite. The Dems beat Trump the way they beat Republicans in 2018, turnout among certain independents in the base, not the moderate voters. So what do you say to uh, Sandy and Rachel? Well, first of all, in the spirit of our friend Senator Klobuchar, I have a very simple answer to this, but let me take an hour to explain it. The, the, Ouch. Um, the, the, no, I'm teasing. I, I kid, I kid mean, the man. Senate people. It's hard no, to be look, a candidate. Anyway, go ahead. It, it is hard to be a candidate. And generally, guys like us tell them to stay on message. So I, she has my sympathy. Now, Sandy, and by the way, I don't make these sexist uh, leaps that you're making here. Sandy might be a fella, too. But Sandy makes a good point. My argument is that all I hear from the Democratic candidates is a laudable goal of uh, celebrating diversity. Good. Sign me up. I'm for it. But if they trim grumpy white male voters away from Trump, they will win this election. That's knocking your your opponent over where the strength is. That's the offensive move here. So I think this constant, never-ending obsession with talking about diversity is a great way to run San Francisco up two more points and not change the Electoral College and give us four more years of Trump. Go win Macomb County. You don't even have to win it. Just trim it a point or two. And you win Michigan, same in Wisconsin, other places. So big strategic difference. And I think this this debate, you're well familiar with it inside the Democratic Party. Where do you go? Uh, I say offense. I say trim voters that have given Trump unnaturally high levels of support. You can cut him down to size based on his record and performance. And that's the best way to win the election. Doesn't mean you don't do the other stuff, but strategy is about uh, having a focused offense. And that's the argument I'm trying to make. Okay. That was a Klobuchar length explanation. <laughs> Let me just say that there's there are competing analyses, uh, Nate Cohen and others, about what Democrats need to do to win because it is not a national election. It is a state-by-state election. And in those battleground states, uh, the electorate looks a little bit different than it does elsewhere. And uh, my argument would be uh, that uh, some emphasis should be placed uh, particularly on white working-class women, white non-college-educated women who seem to be peeling away uh, from Trump in large numbers. If if just a small percentage of them uh, cross the bridge and vote for a Democrat, uh, he is he is in deep trouble. And um, uh, but I do think that if you allow him to run the race along the lines of cultural uh, issues, racial issues, ideologically divisive issues, it makes it harder. And um, so I I would go for the biggest and most uh, universal argument against Trump, which is we can't take another four years of this migraine headache. So here's a bonus question uh, that I have to ask you uh, because it'll allow you to reminisce. Uh, Scott says, Mike, can you talk about the journey that you made from the day that you shut down the Radio Free GOP podcast, R.I.P.? and how you thought about both Trump and what the GOP would become on that day on that day until now. Well, sure. The journey I made was from the microphone to Mulligan's bar, and I, I crawled out. I was so depressed about Trump winning, but my prediction was wrong. I said he'd lose, so I thought, look, shut up. Give him a year. Maybe, just maybe, he will be better than we all think. Of course, he was even worse than the low expectations I had, so it's good to be back podcasting, broadcasting the truth, much like we tried to do with Radio GOP. But this time, I got a great partner in crime with the Dave, great David Axel. Ah, so. thank you. And with that, there's our mailbag. If you have a question, don't be shy. 
by, just email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Send us your mailbag question, comment, insult. That, again, is hacksontap at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to skip last call, not because we want to stay at the bar all night, uh, <laughs> but because uh, we ran long, and uh, we will uh, resume last call next week. Apologies to every bartender in America. Absolutely. I will toast that idea. But first, a little bit of a thank you for listening and a touch of homework. We're really appreciating our our downloads keep going up every week. We're grateful to you for that. But please, you can help us get the word out about the podcast to other people by going to your podcast platform and giving us a rating and even better yet, write down a comment, throw a few words at us. It really helps the algorithm and the different things like iTunes spread us around. You can also click the little button at the bottom and send the podcast by email to friends so they can give it a listen and see if they like it. So thank you for what you're doing to help us get the word out. We're sure enjoying this. And again, thank you. Yeah, for we want to hit the broadest possible audience and not just because Murphy has a young child who's going to have to go to college someday. And we want to make sure the college fund is fully there for her. Yeah, all I can afford now and being an anti-Trump Republican is welding school, and she's a bright kid, so we're hoping <laughs> to do better than that. Not that there's anything wrong with welding. Thanks, Axe. It was great to chat with you. Okay, I'll see you next week.